0: I'm Oliver Bruce, dyslexic and dyspraxic, serial entrepreneur with little more than one GCSE, but none of that matters, and that is exactly why I started this podcast. I've built multi-million pound businesses from just an idea, and I've gone into markets that I've got no right to be in. It's not always plain sailing, and what you see on social media is often a fraction of the reality. I somehow wanted to tell the candid truth, the story around startup and scale-up life, and just how important mental agility and strength is in this largely idealistic and fake world. I hope you enjoy my podcast and take some solace and some learnings from the unspoken reality and subjectivity of the term success. This is Success is in the Mind and thank you so much for watching.
1: I think it's dangerous to for lots of people to go on these podcasts and say, just mm. go with your gut, just yeah, get yeah, on yeah. with it. Yeah, like, yeah. oh, you don't need university. Like, I think that all that stuff is nonsense, to be honest. I mean, we opened next door to a Starbucks. People <laughs> thought we were insane. I mean that is mad. Yeah. We're so guilty of never stopping and celebrating success. We only seem to talk about and celebrate the Elon Musks. And I'm like, why? Why? Yeah. Literally, is. like yeah, in yeah. that moment, it was over for me. Yeah.
0: So, have you coffee and welcome. Thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. This is all about you and grinds, but I want to dial it back a bit and speak about your dad, because your dad, like you, was an entrepreneur. He had an Italian garment business. He had it on the high street. He was a stall trader, opened up a high street store, flipped it into a phone shop and then you kind of took the phone shop on in time. You know, Did you learn a lot from
1: your dad back in the day? Yeah, I learned a huge amount from my dad. I always say that I had a really nice balance between my mum and my dad, because my dad was just straight out entrepreneur. Yeah. He didn't play by the rules. He taught me to kind of, I wouldn't say ignore the rules, but be selective about which Benji. rules you follow and which rules you don't, and to kind of be, you know, I guess, to be slightly unconventional whereas my mum was kind of a bit more sensible that mm-hmm. maybe he lacked sometimes and you know i think my mum kept the wheels on for us as a family quite a lot you know his 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 stuff would either i get the impression that his stuff would either be very successful or not at all successful in yeah. kind of drips and drabs and my mum always worked and had a had a successful career as well and i think so i think i got a nice bit of stability between them but for sure like you know growing up Watching him was very much, I would say, the primary, the mm-hmm. primary reason I became. You know, I, I decided to do stuff on my own. Because
0: you say that some of the things that he did weren't successful. Obviously, the Italian fashion business pretty successful. The phone business, seemingly quite successfully, kind of rode that wave of the revolution
1: in the phone world. What else did he do that didn't really work? Um, look, I wouldn't necessarily say it didn't. It, stuff that he did didn't work. You know, he he started with. Um, clothes like importing fashion from Italy and selling them on Roman roads. so you know back in the 70s or whenever it was you know the world was very very different and mm. if you wanted the latest Italian fashion well someone has to go to Italy and put it in a van and drive it back basically there's yeah. no international yeah. chains there's no obviously no e-commerce so I, I, I think everything he did was successful but I think you know he was so bright so smart and mm. saw so, so far ahead was always such an early adopter and everything. You know, I remember him pulling out the first iPod before I'd even heard of one. Like, really? he could always see where the, kind of the world was going. And yet, you, you know, he achieved, he achieved success, but he didn't achieve gigantic success from a financial perspective. And I think mm-hmm. that was just maybe lacking a little bit of like, um, yeah, I didn't think he wanted, I don't think he wanted to work that hard to be <laughs> completely honest, but I think that's great as well. Like, and yeah. I don't think everyone needs to say, I need to work as hard as possible and do everything, and only focus on making as much money as possible. You know, he saw he saw his businesses as as a tool to enable him to have the lifestyle he wanted, pursuing lots of other interests. So, in terms of defining success, it's quite a subjective term.
0: And you said that your dad isn't successful, but yet he had the freedom to kind of do what he wanted to do, and not if he didn't want to have to work as hard as he should have done, work as hard as he did. What would you say in terms of success to you is then?
1: Look, I think. I think if you create an organisation and it, you, you know, there are people who are solo entrepreneurs, mm. writers or people who have, you know, one man businesses or one woman, woman businesses that are websites or service providers. And I think for them, they get to really curate their own version of success. Because mm-hmm. if you're an author and you, you know, one hit book a decade might be success. And then you spend the rest of the decade doing whatever you please. Mm-hmm. But I think if you create an organisation and it employs lots of people and it has lots of customers, then I think probably the the you, you know the breadth of the definition of success narrows a little bit, and I think you know I think it has to be successful for everyone that's involved. You know it needs to work for the shareholders and the investors because otherwise otherwise there's no point carrying on. It needs to work for the staff because mm-hmm. you're unlikely to have a very successful organisation if you've not got happy staff, and it needs to work for the customers because if it doesn't work for the customers then the, then the music stops. So I think increasingly it becomes about trying to make all of these stakeholders yeah. happy and maybe your own version of what success looked like becomes slightly less relevant, to be honest. Because you worked for your dad's phone shop,
0: essentially. You kind of went in and, and helped him out there. Did you learn all this kind of mentality around keeping staff happy, making sure that shareholders, or at least your dad was pleased, et cetera, and the cash was coming in? Because you can't have just gone straight into into business and you did stuff before that, obviously, but you can't go straight into it knowing everything.
1: You're quite rounded now, but what did you know back then? I think- I think i learned how to sell a little bit which i think is no matter what you do you have to be able to sell in mm-hmm. some form or another whether you know i don't sell coffee directly but we sell coffee as an organization and you have to sell your idea to landlord even if you don't have investors you have to if you want to do a physical mm. rollout you have to sell your ideas to landlords you have to sell your ideas to banks you have to sell your ideas to investors so i think i learned you know how to do that and i think you know talking to a small business and getting them to buy 20 or 30, Nokia 8210s or whatever they were at the time. You know, it was amazing grounding and I could do it on the phone as well so mm-hmm. no one realised I was 13 or whatever <laughs> I was at the time. Um, but yeah, look, I think I think exposure to, to small business is amazing and I think you learn more from doing than you ever will mm-hmm. from, um, you know, and I don't mean this in an anti-education way, you know, I'm super pro-education education, yeah, education yeah. is amazing but like the realities of, you know, firstly, you need a great education to have, the brain power to be able to learn things and understand things and assimilate knowledge, but then you need to go have experience because you do learn more about business through through doing than learning about it for sure. Mm-hmm. And in terms of I suppose what your your dad
0: broke in terms of rules, et cetera, obviously going through education, you were you were pretty straight and narrow. You went through university, yeah. did an internship, you know, you did the path that most people would do to go and get a job in the corporate sector, right? Yeah. Your dad bending the rules, et cetera, how much did that play on you wanting to go actually this isn't for me. I'm going to do this, tick the box and then bugger off and do something else.
1: Yeah, I think I think it I think it really did a lot actually. You know, I went to, you know, I went to a really good school and the only thing that was discussed at school and actually I always say I need to go back to the school and and talk to them and, and you know mm-hmm. try and get involved somehow. Um, I've done that a little bit with UCL actually. So I went, I went to UCL and studied economics yeah, yeah. and I've helped them out a little bit with their in- entrepreneurship stuff. And I think like when I was at school the only thing that was discussed was which of these five to ten red brick universities are you going to? Which Mm -hmm. of these five to ten subjects are you going to do? And after that, which of these five to ten very conventional careers are you going to do? You know, you're going to be a doctor, a lawyer, a management consultant or a banker or something like that. And that was and that was it. And I don't think it was, you know, I don't think they meant it in a bad way. They meant it because this is what success looks like. But it was never discussed that you could go like build something and it could be so much more fun than Mm -hmm. those things and so much more interesting. and I think that's a shame. But I do think the world's moved on a lot in terms of our general awareness now and excitement about entrepreneurship yeah, yeah. and getting your own business. I think the problem now is that we only seem to talk about and celebrate the Elon Musks and yeah. the, the you know the the smash-hit billion-dollar IPOs. Yeah. And we should talk much more about the 1 million, 2 million, 5 million turnover businesses out there that employ 10, 20, 50, 100 people and actually... Are amazing mm-hmm. and we don't talk about those enough. No, and I think there is a, a
0: massive shift in the world of entrepreneurism as you say in terms of people are becoming more accepting of failure which yeah. actually in America has always been there. People have always been like go on give it a go if you cock it up doesn't really matter we'll move on. In America and in, in the UK much much less so but I think that's becoming far more accepted now but in terms of the VC-backed businesses you've obviously gone into businesses that have PE or have VC backing and again you've done some funding recently for Grind of which one of those initially have or has helped you yeah. raise cash. How important is it to raise money when starting a
1: business? I think raising money is inevitably mm. part of the story for for nearly all businesses. Again, if we discount the solo entrepreneur, we discount authors, stuff like that. You know, if you want to build anything, yeah, yeah. it's pretty hard to build something and never raise money. People do it, and. You know, there are there are these people out there that own a hundred percent of their business that they've self-funded from day one, and you know that's that's amazing. Often, if you dig a little bit deeper, there might be a cheeky loan from the bank of mum and dad, or a friend and family, yeah, yeah, yeah. or you know, oh my uncle lent me five hundred grand to start it up. Yeah, but you know, but some people do it for sure. I think, but look, I think the reality is, if you want to accelerate, if you want to start a business, it often needs capital. Although one of the amazing things about twenty twenty two is. The world that we live in today, I, you know, you can start a business arguably for less money, yeah, yeah. faster, easier, and more cheaply than ever before, which is amazing. But you know, typically, you will eventually need to raise money in some form or another, mm-hmm. and you know, people are very into this sphere of raising money. They want to know how you do it, how you get invested. Yeah, yeah. and you know, happy to talk about it, obviously. But you know, the the, the answer is there's there's a lot of answers to that question, mm-hmm. and it's a complex area. Um, But it can be the difference between make and break and i think it certainly has been for us
0: yeah i mean in terms of in terms of accepting failure for you guys because obviously going out and raising money you have a lot of doors closed on you equally starting a business organically and not raising the cash you might have a door closed on you and that is the business right at what point did you go okay great i'm gonna i'm gonna raise the money because i know you were working essentially in another business at the time when you started um when you started grind the business was called into resolve which was a a car um, a yeah broker, it's basically. kind of in
1: the world of the connected car yeah and insurance. is that still around now yeah, yeah it is so that's still run by my best mate from school who's, okay. who's still kind of my best well he's still my best mate Um. Kind but, of your best mate yeah I'm sorry, <laughs> sorry. Um, but yeah look, I, I think you know so that was a business that we fell into yeah, yeah. while still at uni because of a personal connection of someone that invested in it when it was kind of a very like nascent idea we became a founding team of four you right. we went off and raised venture capital literally as four people with an idea we raised I think seven or eight million from and Capital one of one of Europe's leading tech VC firms and then while still at uni you know I would go to UCL two three hours a week in my third year but then do a full-time job um, yeah. the rest of the time and you know again I, I was like 22 23 or something and Sat at a boardroom table at Balderton, mm. pitching for money. I mean, I was like, this is insane. You, but it, did know. did it help that you had that that
0: background in economics at UCL, where you understood finance, you understood numbers, and you understood to a certain extent business because your dad, you, you could know. sit there with a lot more gravitas and say, "You yeah,
1: mate, you hadn't had that." I, I don't necessarily think, to be honest, that the that the degree was the degree was that helpful in, you know? in that. You, you know. I, economics is an amazing degree but it's nothing to do with real world business right it's to do with all the stuff we see in the press now monetary policy and Mm -hmm. inflation and fiscal policy i think i think definitely the experience of just just growing up with i feel very lucky to have grown up in a house where the attitude was you can just just do it just Mm -hmm. get on with it Mm -hmm. just see what happens just try just don't be afraid to fail and you don't need to be so conventional and you know and i watched i watched my dad while everyone else's dads kind of seemingly went off and had these stressful jobs, I watched my dad drive around in his classic cars from <laughs> from meeting to meeting. Yeah. Like I just always thought, like what a nice way to have your business life, yeah. where you get to set your own hours. If you want to stay home and take the kids to the park, you can, if you want to go here, you can. And it doesn't necessarily mean about not working hard, but it means just about being the master of your own mm-hmm. destiny. And I think that attitude yeah. It was probably was probably pretty you know pretty fundamental.
0: And you've always been the master of your own destiny. And as much as you say you fell into Interresolve whilst at university, when you were at Interresolve, you still had Grind as an idea, but you kind of hedged on it and you said, I'll stay in the business, build Grind, and then I'll jump ship when Grind's actually got something that is workable, yeah. essentially. So you've kind of controlled, fairly risk averse, I suppose, in that sense. But when you got into Grind, what did you do to really gear that up that you'd learned over the last couple of years?
1: Yeah look I think I think uh, there was actually there's actually a, a, a brief chapter in there which was I went and did a an internship at a, an investment bank um and I remember distinctly being there and hating it so much Too like corporate just hating it and I, I I was like 8 weeks in the kind of the internshipy stuff had had finished and it was more just like you get given a, an admin job basically yeah i don't think it was the best internship program in the world and i remember distinctly being asked to do this manual job on a a spreadsheet and writing some formulas to speed it up and i am not by any means an excel whiz like Mm -hmm. this was like you know i watched my the guys in my finance team building these 20 page models this is unbelievable you know this was basic stuff yeah and i came up with this and i went and i remember some version of that going to show like my line manager at the time and basically being told, no, 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 we don't want the spreadsheet built like that. Like we want it to be manual. And I'm like, why? Why? Yeah. And they're like, just cause, I don't know, cause Dawn says it has to be like that or something. He's been here for 40 and years. Literally like yeah, in yeah. that moment, it was over for me. Yeah. Like in that one, I actually, I, I don't remember a lot of individual moments, but I remember that one moment and I was like, I just, I can't be in this world. Mm-hmm. I really can't be in this world. So fast forward to, you know, fast forward to 2010 and, and actually, it was kind of necessity that that kicked off Grime because, you know, unfortunately, um, my dad passed away when I was when I was 25. And that necessitated some action, if you like, in that I inherited this this mobile phone business, which by that point was I think it was a lo- It was break even slash loss making hard to tell. You know, he'd been he'd been sick for a few years, obviously, hadn't cared less about the business and was focusing on getting better. So the business had kind of been in decline. Plus, you had the shift towards the iPhone yeah. where everyone just wants the phone in a box and it becomes, yeah. you know, it's, it's no longer, mm-hmm. it started off installing something that in today's money would cost 5,000 pounds into the back of your car to yeah, yeah. a relatively commoditized thing where everyone just wants it for the cheapest price. Um, so, you know, the business had been doing, yeah, yeah, yeah. had been coming off anyway. And But I loved that little building on Old Street Roundabout. So, for for people who are not in London or super familiar with London, um, there's there's a roundabout called Old Street Roundabout in East mm-hmm. London, just near the city. It's became, as you know, yeah. teaching you to suck eggs, but you know, it's <laughs> become it's become known as Silicon Roundabout. Yeah, yeah. You know, businesses like TransferWise and those kind of businesses, you know, loads of tech businesses were literally born on top of that roundabout, sometimes in Shoreditch Grind in the mm-hmm. early days, and this became really the hub of of East London. And even though we made the decision to Uh, create shortage grind before that you could see it coming right like Mm -hmm. 2012 the olympics was coming that was in stratford the center of london was kind of gravitating east and i love that little that little spot that little round building it is a wicked building yeah i mean and it's still there today obviously in terms of the,
0: it looks awesome and it's very iconic in fact i was there only a few months ago
1: i remember it really well yeah, it's a great building. No, it's, it's an, it was an amazing building, and you know it was my dad's building. He he didn't have the freehold, but he had a very long lease. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that we've since extended into an even longer lease. Nine nine nine. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. I, I wish it was nine nine nine, but yeah, you it's know, not far off. Not um, far off. But and I just like it. Never for a second occurred to me that we would give this building back, yeah, yeah, yeah. or we would not do something with it. And you know, obviously, that kicked off the whole Grind project. Uh, But in terms of actually going into it then,
0: obviously, you you know the guys that you're working with into Resolve, how did they feel when you said, boys, I'm out, I can't do this anymore? Surely that was a bit of a
1: stab in the back to you, mate. No, do you know what? It it wasn't like that, actually, because I I did both for for about two years, or certainly for 18 months. So I kind of set it up as, I set Grind up as a side project, essentially, Mm -hmm. and I would go before going to work and and after work, and sometimes I would nip there during lunch, and, Mm -hmm. and it wasn't until... Look, I, 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 think you know it was a hedge. A hedge is a great term because I didn't leave Interresolve until I had financing lined up yeah, yeah, to yeah. do stores two, three, and four. But oh, I, so I, you were looking
0: that far ahead. It wasn't just a nail store one. It was going down. No, yeah, yeah, three, so, four, five so stores. So I
1: arranged. Deep. I arranged our first external investment while still working at the other business and. Then you know, as part of the part of the package, I agreed to leave and go full time to focus on the rollout from one store to four stores, because once looking after one store was not enough to keep me
0: mm-hmm.
1: busy enough that I yeah. would have just done that. So it was all about, okay, well, one store's successful, we're going to roll out, yeah. I'll leave and join. Fortunately, the timing worked quite well for the other business because you know that business is still going now, but it's shrunk and changed and swung directions mm-hmm. a million times, as these things often do. Mm-hmm. And at the time, we had too many chiefs. Yeah. And not enough Indians. Um yeah, yeah. and there was too many people sat there on chunky salaries. Yeah. You, you know, and, and and like it was a bit like looking around the table and you top come heavy. to the realisation that we're just top heavy. And I was like, look, guys, I think I'm gonna make this I'm gonna make this easy. Yeah, yeah. I've got this other thing going, I'm really enjoying it. Yeah. I'm gonna go do that for a bit.
0: Right. Okay. Um in terms of that then, did you did you have a, a buyout from Interresolve, or was it very much a boys, you
1: take it, you run with it, I'm done. Yeah, no, look, I mean, I, I, kept, I kept some equity, but yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there was no, there was no buyout. I mean, back mm-hmm. then it was still about, you know, funding the business to mm-hmm. keep it alive, as it so often is. So no, there was no, there wasn't a massive queue of buyers for, for those shares at the time.
0: And you say it was sort of through necessity because your dad passed away and you know, I'm sorry to hear that. But in terms of actually how you went, OK, Dad, I can see this coming because obviously it must have been a three or four year period. He said that he wasn't focused on the yeah, business yeah. for a while and then it suddenly happened. How did you go, well, I'm going to change this phone shop into a coffee shop? Or did you have to keep nurturing along with that phone shop? or What was the process there?
1: No, it's weird because those times, you know, that was without doubt the worst period of my life mm-hmm. ever. And you almost, I think, start running slightly on autopilot because you're so kind of yeah. obviously preoccupied with, with what's happened. And, uh, yeah, I, I can't even remember the, the point at which... I pressed the go button. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like there must have been a point, but yeah. I remember talking to the staff and saying, like, look, I'm sorry, but we're gonna move the remaining parts of the business online, sell off this part of the business, and that the store is gonna cease trading. But to be honest, I think you, you know you gotta remember it was a small family business, and the staff were devastated as well about yeah. what had happened. Yeah. And they they it wasn't a big organisation. There's probably four or five members of staff. Right. But they knew what was happening. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, you know, so step one is closed down. Step two is speak to the landlord Mm -hmm. and explain what's happening and then step three was we'll decide what we're going to do with the building and Mm -hmm. meantime we were still paying the rent every quarter which was a not insignificant amount of money and certainly you know i didn't have huge amounts of money then so that was that was a good motivating factor to to Mm -hmm. get on with it and and crack on and then it became rip out the store refit the store Mm -hmm. put the pieces together and then and then get it back open i think that took about i think it took us I think it was about 13 months mm-hmm. or so between my dad passing away and the doors reopening. Wow. Um, wow. So, yeah, I think, you know, it was obviously a long time. Yeah, we would never dream of sitting on a store for 13 months now, but considering it was the first one, I think mean, yeah. it was, wasn't too bad.
0: And, and considering it was the first one, what, when opening it or when building out the concept or the value prop or the business plan, did you have in place that actually was just
1: a complete, like, a farcical idea that just didn't work? Uh, well, i mean so so i when i when i decided okay this is definitely going to be a coffee shop it's definitely going to be a kind of a cool independent style coffee shop i basically i knew i needed some money more Mm -hmm. money than i had and i knew i needed someone who really got it and i had a friend or i have a friend still um he's you know still part of the business today a guy called kaz um he was uh he was in the Body Rockers. He had the song "I Like the Way You Move." It was Kaz James, correct? Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, so he had this massive smash hit record. His with song, "By like the Way You yeah, Move." Yeah, yeah. really. Yeah. Massive, <laughs> massive record. But I met him just before that. Actually, he yeah. he signed with Universal. He's Australian from Melbourne. He signed with Universal Records. Came over to London, mm-hmm. and my best friend from growing up owned his dad owned the Cross, and not a kind of legendary right. nightclub in King's Cross. It's now obviously all been redeveloped. But back in the day, it was like the Ibiza nightclub. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, properly legendary. Mm -hmm. It was there for 20 years or something. Anyway, we would obviously always be there because, you know, luckily my best best mate's dad owned the best club in London. So we were there all the time when we were 18 or 19 or whatever. And so I I don't know. This was pre-Facebook almost. This was pre-all of that stuff. But for whatever reason, one of our group of friends knew one of... Kaz's Mm -hmm. group of friends, and they kind of said, "Look, when you get to London, come to the cross, come to the, you know, Mm -hmm. the kitchen out the back, which was like the VIP thing, and you know, you probably like these guys." Anyway, so we all met and became friends. We've been friends ever since. And because Kaz was from Melbourne, he really missed the Melbourne coffee scene, and he just didn't get it. He was like, "I don't understand. London is amazing. Like London, I absolutely love London, but I just don't get this coffee thing." Like, I was like, and I actually remember, we'd go out for dinner, and Kaz would constantly moan about the coffee. And somewhere in the back of my mind, it was like, okay, if I'm gonna do a coffee shop, I think I should get Kaz in Yeah, and he's like very creative, had some money to put in because of yeah, you know, because he made a lot of money at yeah. the record. So so then we started. And I think an idea that didn't work, I, I wouldn't say it didn't work, but we put a recording studio upstairs. Um okay. so that obviously this was Kaz's I get idea. It. Yeah, yeah. He wanted to hang out there and have a recording studio. And look, I don't regret for a second putting a recording studio upstairs. It's it's been really cool. Mm-hmm. We've had amazing famous artists come and write records in there you know it's been such a great part of the culture it never worked as a business in terms of like renting it out because the reality is you just end up lending it to your mates but it's a great PR stunt yeah Yeah. but I mean look I think we made so many mistakes Mm -hmm. like just countless mistakes you know we had no idea about the licenses you needed the permissions you needed we had no idea about the health and safety stuff you had to put in place yeah yeah. you you know but i think What's great, you know, don't worry, nothing was ever too bad, but, you, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of I's and T's you have to crop yeah. cross with different colour chopping boards, yeah, and yeah. You, you know, all this stuff, which yeah. is obviously designed to be there and protect people. You have to learn that stuff fast in your first kind of couple of months of operation. Yeah, 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 yeah. But what's nice when you start up is people are very, very helpful. Yeah. People are way more helpful to one man band brand new businesses than they are to... 10, 20, 50 site, mm-hmm. 50 location organisations because yeah. they kind of are willing to let you learn a bit at the start. But yeah, yeah. once you've been going for a while, they're like, no, no, you should know better, which is fair enough. That no,
0: is fair. And do you think if you raise money, they, they they perceive you slightly differently? If you go, right, yeah, I've done sure. a £2
1: million funds, you should now know what you're doing. Yeah, for sure. And people, people don't read anything. They just read the headline. Yeah, so, yeah. Y- you know, they read oh, Grimes done this raise, and they think I got that money or something. Or they think, like... They think you're the richest person in the room. Yeah, yeah. and, like, yeah. you know, it's like people don't even go into the detail. It's, but as soon as, like, some... As soon as someone sees some headline like that, they're like, oh, my God, these guys must be able to afford everything. They must be... Yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, it's just not the reality, yeah. um, as as anyone in business knows. But, look, I think... Yeah, look, I think we, we made a lot of mistakes at yeah. the start, and we continue to make mistakes today. Yeah,
0: yeah, And do, I mean, in terms of... There's a level of irony from... The transition from the phone shop when you went, your dad obviously had it. It was turning into a commodity. Yeah. To, to going into coffee, which fundamentally is a commodity, right? Yeah. I mean, we opened next door to a Starbucks. People <laughs> thought we were insane. I mean, that is mad. Yeah, that is mad. But you, you know, you were a bar as well as a coffee shop as well as a live music venue. As you were, you were a place to go to to entertain yeah. people. Yeah. Which Starbucks, Starbucks wasn't. You know, that must have had a massive, massive impact on the retention
1: of people coming back. Yeah, look, and I, I think you know it's all just been evolution which i think is a really nice thing about grind and probably like one of my favorite parts about the story is how it's organically evolved from thing to thing to thing and you know v1 v 0.1 of grind it was because it was still in beta then right like it wasn't even wasn't even ready to be publicly released was literally just coffee sandwiches croissants that was it so the basic like the basic coffee shop and was you you know the ingredients on day one that made it a success were um an amazing team who we encouraged to have loads of fun Mm -hmm. turn the music up dance around let's make this fun because at the time at the time you had a choice right you could go to starbucks costa wherever and get what they do and we all know what they do Mm -hmm. or you could seek out these independent places often run by a Kiwi or someone from Australia or yeah. something like that and, and they were you know the quality of the products was great but the problem not with all of them but with a lot of them was they'd be tucked down a side street mm. like you, you know they'd never be prime you, you had to know yeah, where yeah. they were there wasn't a sign when yeah. you went inside it looked like they'd spent about 50 quid fitting it out and it was kind of falling apart yeah. and it would take 20 minutes to get in and out and get a coffee yeah. the card machine's always broken the person serving you perhaps might ask you too many questions about do you want the Guatemalan or the Mexican or the I just EPO? Want coffee? I just I just want I just coffee want coffee. I just want a coffee. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, like, I'm now fifteen minutes late for a meeting yeah. because the whole process has taken twenty I minutes. I can't read your chalkboards and it's yeah. really irritating. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. where's the loyalty scheme? Yeah. Why is there no bathroom? Why is it so dirty yeah. in here? Like where's the hygiene? Like yeah. you you know, like they weren't necessarily excelling at those things, but the product was great. So from day one, it was about well, can we take all the things that are great about a Starbucks mm-hmm. or a Ie you know the card machine does work and there's no minimum spend and we do take American Express and yeah, all these yeah. other things that like <laughs> you take for granted now but in the 2011 AMX one's we're really not... interesting though, because there's so many independent coffee shops there yeah, no, and it's sweet. just a complete bind. Yeah I'm always I'm like we, we will take money in yeah. any form you yeah, want yeah. to give it to us pretty much yeah you know and there'll be a loyalty scheme and you'll get in and out and the products will be consistent and yeah, the place yeah. will be clean. Can we manage, can we map that? with the high quality product and then make it fun and make yeah. it accessible not make it like this coffee education experience like actually maybe i just want a great flat white and yeah. i don't want to talk about it that much speed like, and extra. yeah exactly yeah. so that was that isn't there was no business plan it was like properly like we were just making it up even I when think, you
0: went for the cash there
1: must yeah have well been no because we the funded the first one privately and then you did a crowdfund, right uh no then we did some angel stuff to go from one to four and then we started doing crowd crowd stuff after four sites so by then there was but site one was our own money we were literally just making it up and i mean at one point we built a bar and then tore it down because (laughs) we realized it was just didn't work so you know we built the i want not say we built we had someone build a bar and we realized it was all in the wrong place and it was all back to front and we like tore (laughs) it down and uh, that's just kind of part of it but um look i think that 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 was kind of the fundamental idea and then it was this idea of we want to have our own coffee made for us, mm. um, and obviously today we're we're sat in our coffee roastery, which yeah, yeah. is a uh, you can't see much of it behind us, but we're going downstairs know, in a bit through that wall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. there's a there's a big old, pretty serious coffee roasting operation. We didn't have that back then, yeah, yeah. But we found someone who would roast to our specifications and put it in a bag with the brand of the first store, which was Shoreditch Grind before we later became Grind, um, because I didn't want to be promoting someone else's business, you know. Mm-hmm. And and I think it was was interesting because you look back on some of the little decisions you made that turned into be that turned out to be massive decisions without you even knowing it but like we literally had people knocking on the door going hi we're from X Mm -hmm. coffee roasters you you know we'll give you a free machine free training you can come to our place around the corner we'll help you out we'll help you with cups and milks and yeah, we'll sort out the whole supply chain for you take away a lot of pain and a lot of money if you agree to use our coffee and put it on the shelves because you know they they obviously see this as an advertising opportunity as yep. well as getting the contract yeah and we were like nah, just, I'm just i'm not interested in building someone else's brand mm-hmm. even from day one that for some reason that was instinctive and obviously that yeah. was very important well down, you wouldn't down be
0: here if you didn't do what no i don't you've think done. so no I well, don't you'd have just so. been to come another commoditized
1: coffee shop yeah. on the corner of a high street yeah exactly oh. so you know i think sometimes Sometimes the big decisions you have no idea you're even they they are at the moment of making them you don't realise they're big decisions but later turns out they were. Do you do you look back on
0: that and you go okay, cross, I'm going to consolidate what's happened. I'm going to take some you know time out. Albeit you just had a kid, so you can't take any time out now. But back in the day, and you kind of went actually take stock. That's good. I've done well. I'm happy with where I've got to. Or do you go next, 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 next and never have
1: time to sit down and uh, and kind of reflect? yeah I mean I think it's definitely the latter I mean I think we are we're so guilty of never stopping and celebrating success and the the nature of these things i don't know we say it every time we're doing a a fundraise or we've got some big moment coming up we say right this time we never stop and celebrate yeah, this yeah. time we're really going to stop and celebrate and we yeah. say it <laughs> and we never we never do it properly and i think I think that's partly because think that's partly because everything takes so long yeah yeah. by the time it actually happens you're bored of it like people imagine this moment of you know we did a big fundraise last year um you know everyone took some some secondaries um you know everyone took some everyone sold some shares for the first time you know i sold some shares for the first time since i started it for 10 years you know it was a big it was a big milestone moment especially off the pandemic pivot which i'm sure we'll come on to um but you know still i think like these things, everyone imagines you're all sat in a boardroom, and then you know you open a bottle of yeah. champagne, and yeah. everyone goes. It's just not like that. Like the reality is, it completes when someone finally clicks sign on a DocuSign somewhere, and then someone in a bank moves some money around, and mm-hmm. then. But there's never a moment of completion necessarily. No. It's like drips on, and yeah, yeah. by this point, you spent so much time with lawyers, you've spent so much time talking about it. It's relief yeah. but when it actually gets to the point of being contracted whatever that thing is you just want to go to bed like and just like go sit in the garden quietly and like like or by your own not talk by yourself and not talk to anyone um well i I think you know i'm going to try in the next 10 years i'm going to try and celebrate success more
0: before we get back to the podcast i wanted to ask you are you a high growth startup or an ambitious entrepreneur our headline sponsors capsule cover are the perfect insurance specialists if you are geared for high growth Here at Pinpoint Media, we use Capsule Cover for all our insurance. So if you're an ambitious, high-growth startup, why not reach out to them via CapsuleCover.com?
1: Coming up in this episode... How are you going to cut through that noise? Like, why are you different? You see lots of these D2C businesses grew big online businesses, then opened physical. We've kind of done it the other way around, in that we opened the physical, but we are now primarily a coffee-at-home business.
0: That is all to come in this episode of Successes in the Mind. But in, I mean, in terms of actually coming up with those ideas and pushing it forwards, it was you and your business partner at the, at the time when you when you founded it. Now, is it a team of people that come up with the ideas? Is it yourself that come up with the ideas? Because, and you alluded to the pandemic pivot, um, and you did amazingly. You know, it took you 10 years to make 10 million quid roughly revenue from, from grind from the restaurants. And then in the pandemic, 10 months to make another 10 million quid by doing home delivery, which makes absolute sense
1: was that your idea um look i think you know we're a big we're a big organisation now i think we've got, i don't know 250 300 staff across yeah yeah across wow. the different bits um and you you know ideas come from everywhere i think we you know and and particularly the the kind of the smaller ide the, the really good but smaller ideas and the innovation mm. the, the the day-to-day innovation Definitely comes from the teams in the business because they're they're the experts in in what they do and they're closest to it and they're doing it every day. So, like, you know, the guy that runs the roastery here is constantly innovating. He's constantly gone to Germany to meet some new home compostable packaging supplier that can do a material that's better for coffee freshness and better for this, and we Mm -hmm. don't need this, and we got got this new box, this new packaging. Like they're constantly doing amazing work on innovating. I think the the story about the pandemic pivot. Look, I think, yeah, I think I think that was that was in a big way, uh, me me personally. Or, mm-hmm. in, but for sure, influenced by my team, by my finance director, by my now CMO. But I think that was it was as much as anything. It was a reaction to what we were seeing. So this was this was 2019, and by this point, yeah, I think we were at I don't know 10, 11, 12 million of of, of run rate revenue, something like that. I think we had 10 or 11 stores, something like that. We had a franchise agreement to roll out in airports and train stations signed. We had two or three stores under right. under contract. We had partnership stuff. And you know, we were a pretty well known brand. We had, you know, hundreds of thousands of social media followers. You know, we we're a pretty well known brand. We'd already done two rounds of two rounds of crowdfunding successfully. Mm-hmm. And we were gearing up to do our third one. And we were actually we really did that third one because um if you want to raise money under EIS which is a yeah, yeah. tax a tax uh, in big tax incentive for individual investors you can't do it when you're when you've got more than 250 full time equivalent employees so you might have 300 people but effectively that's like 250 full time people mm-hmm. and we realized we were right up against that limit and so we realized we had the opportunity to do one last round under under EIS, before we kept growing and our headcount burst mm-hmm. rate. So we decided it made sense to do that because EIS is such an amazing oh, yeah. uh, incentive. And and that's where they get
0: basically 70, 70% offset against tax. So yeah, you get an immediate. So yeah. if you
1: invest £10,000, you get £3,000 off your tax bill next January. And then any gain in the future is tax free. Mm-hmm. And if the business eventually doesn't work, you write it off against future tax, books. so it's very, very, really risky. Very, very advantageous, and makes makes it much more palatable to invest in risky small businesses yeah. as an individual. So we decided to do one last round anyway, and this was kind of the summer of the summer of two thousand and nineteen. And as I said, we had lots of stores, we had lots of staff. You know, all of our stores were going really well, everything was great, and we were building these we were building these plans. And it, it wasn't, it, I think, just based on what we we're seeing, it became. It just felt like it was getting squeezed yeah. like you know and this was the casual dining crunch was going on and like you know those big lots of big restaurant chains were, were, were either going completely bust if you remember yeah. or yeah. were massively cutting sites because it was getting harder and harder rent was going up rates were going up the amount you paid staff was going up um you, you know the input costs of everything was going up not like it is now but it it's was good still, yeah say. it was going up and you you felt like Every time you did a new one of these stores, you'd go and spend a million, million and a half pounds fitting it out. It was you know, a relatively big bet. Mm-hmm. It needed to take 50 grand a week or whatever it needs to take mm-hmm. for it to really make sense. And and how many times can you do that yeah. before you get one yeah. really wrong? And we did get one really wrong actually. And it's like, you, but, but at the same time, we've got this brand and people love this mm-hmm. brand. Like, and I would meet people and they would say to me, I love Grind, like I love the brand, I Mm -hmm. love this person in this store. And I like, I knew, obviously, you know, people are always nice when they find out it's yours, but I felt like I really believed, and I still do believe that people actually love the brand Mm -hmm. and, and what we stand for. And so there has to be another way to leverage this without just constantly adding more and more stores and all the risk and difficulties that that entails. So it was quite a strategic move, I think, to, to to go into developing coffee products to sell at home yeah and i think i had this other thing which was i didn't make coffee at home right which was really weird for someone who owned a coffee business and a coffee roastery because i honestly just couldn't be bothered with all the faff and the mess and like occasionally i would do it and i had various like home espresso machines and this but you know just kind of end up with coffee everywhere coffee beans on the floor like I was like, oh, I can't bother with this, and, you know. But I think always thought that you know Nespresso was such an amazing system mm. in terms of the energy in to output out. You know, put it in, press a button. It's pretty much like ordering it on your phone and it appearing in the kitchen, as good as. which is what we want as yeah. you know as as modern day customers. But the problem was that you know the problem was first of all the coffee didn't taste very good in my opinion, and secondly, th- this environmental thing was just you know terrible and mm. you get in this thing and you're putting it in the bin it's like this is rubbish mm. but then we discovered we could do compostable pods and after that discovery it was like right okay w- I-, I think this really makes sense and i think i'd always followed you know i i never i didn't read hospitality magazines you know i read tech crunch and sunday time yeah, business and I love FT. Tech um, yeah, yeah. yeah i always i mean, yeah, yeah, i used yeah. to read tech crunch every day back then and you know i'd seen Dollar Shave Club and all these other things. Like, I think you know Dollar yeah. Shave Club inspired a whole generation of businesses. Yeah. I think, but yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you know, it suddenly occurred to me. I was like, hold on, like you, you know, we could do coffee pods in the post through the letterbox. Yeah, they don't need to be refrigerated. They've got a long shelf life. They fit through the letterbox, and probably if you use one coffee pod a day, you're going to use one coffee pod tomorrow and the day after and the day after. If you use three, you're going to use three tomorrow and the yeah, three. Yeah. So like perfect for subscription because the frequency on which you order and reorder is is relatively consistent like the the cadence is very consistent right so like for all of these reasons this feels like a really good subscription product um and I think I was already at that point subscribed to like laundry capsules through the post and a few other things like that and really you know I think this whole thing here started and I've got one, I've got like a five or six page little memo that I wrote for our board and our, our investors back in 2019 that, that you know, some of the team helped with outlining that we should, we should instead of doing a million pounds into yet another physical store, we should spend a million pounds on a bet An into direct consumer. And that involved, actually wasn't this place, it was about two miles away because we moved into that roastery, which was very big at the time, yeah. but a fraction of the size of this we ended up outgrowing it in like nine months and having to move again because of what happened with the pandemic. But it was, let's move roastery, let's buy some big pieces of machinery that we really need for the manufacturing, some of which were a quarter of a million quid each. Let's build a Shopify website, let's put a budget into place for Facebook and Instagram advertising. I was going
0: to say, that's what I basically, I first came across you guys properly was exactly at that point in the pandemic when you basically attacked my instagram fees yeah and it was great stuff it was really good stuff but the d2c world has become bigger and bigger over the last couple of months and years yeah you got it again at the exact right time
1: yeah i think look, i think we certainly had a we had a really great year from the start of the pandemic to kind of april 2021 yeah. i think um the world of d2c is, is changing a lot um but certainly for that period that look and i think if you go back to you go back to 2019 i think the rationale of let's do D to C was really really sound mm-hmm. and i'm you know i'm obviously unbelievably grateful that we took that decision and i'm grateful that my investors and board backed what was arguably quite a risky decision at the time yeah. but i think you know the pandemic obviously had the benefit of massively accelerating it and making it really look like a good decision you know mm-hmm. was it a good decision in isolation i, I don't know was it a good decision if you somehow magically have a crystal ball and know that a pandemic's coming, yes, it was yeah, the best yeah, decision ever. So, you know, sometimes life conspires to make you look good and sometimes mm-hmm. life conspires to make you look bad. And mm-hmm. in that in that situation, you know, obviously very glad we did it. But, yeah, look, I, I think that D2C, that D2C world was was amazing then. Mm-hmm. And I'm really glad we had it. It has it has become much more difficult in the last year. I think there was a kind of probably a golden decade of D2C which, which ended in ended last summer, mm-hmm. really, with the iOS and, and Facebook changes. Because you can't retarget as
0: aggressively as you used to be able to But exactly. arguably, people are still, because it's got such a low barrier to entry for D2C, because yeah. frankly, you can sell something and then make it. Yeah. Ironically, the barrier to entry for your world is quite high. You're talking about you know the million, million and a half you've got to put into yeah, a restaurant, yeah. for instance. There are so many people that try and go into F and B businesses yeah. because they think it's easy to do, yeah. and it goes Pete Tong. Yeah. What would you say to them in terms of when investing or building or growing a, a, an F and B brand? Yeah. It ain't just okay. I'm going to sell some sweets to somebody. Yeah,
1: a lot harder than that. What would you do? Yeah, F and B is really hard. Mm. Um, like it, it's you know everyone thinks they'd be great at running a bar and a restaurant because. They know what people want. They like and drinking, yeah. They, yeah. yeah. they like drinking and they like eating. And the yeah. reality is, it's a lot harder than that. <laughs> and <laughs> the failure rate for starting any business is pretty high. Mm. The failure rate on F and B is about as high as it gets, I believe. Look, I think like like everything. Like, are you solving a genuine need? Are you doing something mm-hmm. that people want that people are interested in? Like you know no one cares like Mm -hmm. i always like to remind people no one cares about you or what you're doing like because there's so much noise in the world like Mm -hmm. so how are you going to cut through that noise like why are you different Mm -hmm. and you don't have to you don't have to invent uh, you know some amazing new technology to have success in business you you know it can just be an iteration on what everyone else was doing before in fact look at branson most businesses are exactly yeah you know hasn't hasn't nothing invented. new there yeah uh, cruise ships have been around a while yeah just lanes but just his take right yeah. just a new version Slightly exactly yeah and for and taking the good bits and then repackaging it for the desires of the current customer base rather than repeating what everyone else has always mm. done yeah mm. great example would be rolling together business class and first class right like what was the point of well a uh, version
0: Atlantic it? we should say are brilliant yes uh, exactly
1: <laughs> well, I'm sorry. I, I, absolutely I'm saying I think it was the, the idea at the time of rolling together business class and first class yeah, into yeah, just yeah. upper class was was quite revolutionary, revolutionary, but made so much sense.
0: Have you seen the new uh, tables now, where you can have like a group of people on a plane? So you've got yeah, a yeah, yeah. genius. Yeah, that's it's so amazing. simple. Yeah, it's so Very simple. simple. Yeah. It changes everything. Yeah, it changes, everything. yeah. It changes everything. But in terms of and that's just iteration, granted. But in terms of investing in a business, SaaS businesses, yeah, everybody's getting money for SaaS businesses, even if they're not going to necessarily work. Yeah. But again, people base themselves on what they see on LinkedIn. How do you? sort of manage your mental well-being when actually looking at people online going yeah that's fine you're doing really well but actually i'm doing this where do you metric yourself how do you keep yourself going when you see harry
1: down the road raising 20 million quid and you're like well bugger i should have done that yeah i I think there were definitely some moments where you know five years in or something where i thought god maybe maybe i've chosen the most difficult (laughs) path ever here like you know tech seems so easy everyone is throwing money at tech so easily you know this is so hard it's physical like you know the physical like you know physical rollouts could not have been more out of favor than they were a few years ago Mm -hmm. ironically you've now got a big shift of all of these e-commerce and dc businesses opening physical stores i think you have to remind yourself that everything is cyclical like and like you know two years ago every vc in the world was like grow faster grow revenue don't worry about profit just chase customer numbers Mm -hmm. we'll figure out profit later da 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 and then like overnight, mm-hmm. there's a bit of a sentiment shift, and everyone's laying off 10, 20, 30 percent of their workforce, everyone's on a route to profitability. Yeah. and like this stuff is pretty fickle and, and pretty cyclical. and I mm-hmm. think ultimately, just stay in your own lane, focus on your knitting as one of one of my, <laughs> my board members <laughs> likes to say to me at every opportunity. Um, you know, just stay in your lane, focus on what you're doing, yeah, yeah. build value create customers, uh, and the other stuff will figure itself out.
0: Because there's been some quite clear things that you've put in place over the last 10 or so years to build Grind, but there's another thing that's in, on the horizon. You've raised 20-odd million quid, going back to that analogy about raising money, but to open up in America. Now, America is a totally different market yep. to the UK in terms of laws and people and trade, just
1: everything. Yeah, Massive risk. Do you yep. know much about America? Uh, yeah, I know a little bit about it. Look, I think we, I, I think that it got reported that we raised that money to go to America, whereas th- the story was we raised that money to grow the business, and that included Part going to answer. America. Yeah. But but people see America and a big number and put it together in a headline. Um, you know, but we we certainly are growing the U.S. business for sure. Yeah. So so we supply Soho House Group yeah, um, yeah. globally with coffee. So we have a big partnership with them. You know, for me they set the bar about hospitality. You know, I've, I'm a huge fan and love the guys from Soho House and. So our coffee is in all of the UK and European and US houses and our tins of home compostable pods, like these, mm-hmm. uh, these here are in all of the hotel rooms. So we have a very deep partnership with them. So we already, before, you know, before this last round, we already roast coffee daily in Brooklyn and uh, LA yeah, in partnership. You know, we have our own team members there roasting. So you don't
0: shove it out from the UK, no, 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 you do no. it because locally? Cost- too bad for the yeah, environment yeah, yeah.
1: as well, like shipping that coffee around. Um, yeah. So, so we already do that. Um, we now have our DTC business live. So there's a US website. We have US subscribers and US people coming onto the sites. We're in a few supermarkets, and we're mm-hmm. going to be doing some physical stuff out there as well. But I think we are. Look, we think the US is a massive opportunity. We think there's a huge, obviously, cultural link between us and there. We have this big Sower House presence there. A lot of Sower House's future growth is focused on the US. Mm -hmm. So that gives us a great kind of springboard to meet their members and Mm -hmm. and get a little bit of brand recognition. But, you know, we're not going, we're not interested in opening 100 coffee shops Mm -hmm. in in the US. That would require 100 million pounds. Um, We are, however, just really enjoying and having a lot of fun just getting our first customers getting our first US sales yeah, yeah. starting to tweak the product for the US tweak the messaging you know introduce other products different sizes you know and starting on the process of yeah. of discovery and i think you know for me personally what i've loved so much about the last few years is that i've gone from running this high street running and growing this high street business got it to a point where it kind of made sense had mm. some scale have inserted a managing director amazing guy called kyle who funnily enough is exo house is he? into run into running that business day to day and i'm now building the uh direct consumer business yeah. so it's been like starting again with two of us and that that business has now got i don't know 40 or 50 people working on it full time mm-hmm. and then you start this new chapter of the us and yeah. i think i think that's probably where a lot of a lot of entrepreneurs probably enjoy that bit the most and maybe add the most value then. Like in, I think the ideation. You know, there's a re- there's a reason that all of these big tech businesses eventually install a grown up professional CEO to yeah. run them, right? Yeah. Because running a big organization, we're obviously on nothing like the scale of that, but the t- same principles apply. Like yeah, yeah. running a big organization is a very different skill set than willing something into existence and like creating it from yeah. from the beginning. And so you know, I've loved starting the e-commerce business and we're loving now starting and learning about the international expansion. In terms of
0: management delegation and that kind of thing, because obviously when you started you had one restaurant but actually then you opened a couple of other ones for instance because you were bored or it wasn't entertaining you enough, right? (laughs) You'd have had to have delegated from day one because you have to have staff on the bar, right? In terms of plugging in your MD uh, into Grind as we knew it. You know, at what point did you go? Actually, I'm going to step back a little bit here. This is my baby, but you can run it. I'm going to go and explore the US or the D2C markets or whatever that might be,
1: because that in and of itself is a massive risk just to delegate the business. Yeah, I've, I've ne- that's one thing that I've never struggled with is kind of delegation and, yeah. and the letting go. I'm, I'm a control freak in the way that lots of us are control freaks in that we like to know what's going on. Yeah. We like to be, I like to be consulted on key decisions but I don't feel the need to be in the middle of everything and, and, and making it up. And actually, the whole point to me, like when we had one store, I was CEO, finance director, HR director, ops director. I'm an everything director, right? Yeah. Like Because there's no one else to do anything. And so you're like, you know, I distinctly remember doing payroll from a laptop mm-hmm. um, on holiday somewhere. Because yeah, yeah. it was I was on holiday for the first time in ages, but it was Friday. And I had to do payroll and I was sat there tethered to my phone on the laptop manually doing payroll for the 20 staff. And like, to me, that sucks. Like, I don't want to do that. So Mm -hmm. like, as soon as the better, as soon as we can afford to hire experts, let's put experts into all these things who Mm -hmm. all are obviously going to do a better job of doing that thing full time where they're an expert than I am in one tenth of my time and I'm not an expert. So I have no, I have no problem with that, really. I think... You know, as CEO, you still have to define. You you know, you still have. You you have an increasingly important, in a lot of ways, role to play in defining culture. Mm -hmm. Thinking about, you know, where do we spend our gold? You know, we've got this pot of gold. Where are we going to bet that gold? I think that's super important, and all these other things. But actually, running the business day to day, it's like get experts to do it. How often did you go with your guts rather than your heads? A lot. I think. I think it's dangerous to. For lots of people to go on these podcasts and say, just mm. go with your gut. Just yeah, get yeah, on yeah. with it. Yeah, like, yeah. oh, you don't need university. Like, I think that all that stuff is nonsense, to be honest. Yeah. Like, I think it's like really yeah. overhyped. I think it's it's clickbaity mm-hmm. But I think you, you know, I think your gut is not this mystical force. Your your gut is just your experience of what you've seen mm-hmm. and having the ability to go, look, I realize that on paper this makes sense but actually i just don't think that's how the world works
0: where you feel comfortable yeah
1: safe zone yeah Uh, and i think it's like it's just i just don't think it's going to turn out like that because normally you're trying to predict the future in one way or another right like that's what you're trying to do like you're trying to say will this site work or not will this product work or not yeah and actually as ceo you have to have the ability to absorb all of this information some of it financial some of it anecdotal some of it just from your mates, some yeah, of the yeah. people you bump into, and try and form opinions on stuff which doesn't have a right or a wrong answer. Yeah, yeah. It's, just a, it's just a bet at the end of the day. Like it's a, but my gut says, actually, I think this is going to happen, not that. Yeah. And you have to be able to decide and then you have to be able to convince others yeah. that you're going to be right. Yeah. And then you have to try and make yourself right retrospectively as well as things go on <laughs> yeah. which Even is interesting bad, that is yeah. difficult
0: and in terms of kind of how your life is changing it's changed massively over the last literally eight weeks because you've had uh, you've had a little one so congratulations yes. with that in terms Thank of you. in terms of how that's changed your life as a business owner yeah because you can manage it up until this point by going oh, i'm not going to go to that meeting i'm going to go and do this this and this yeah. you've got a little one now so you're up 24 hours a day pretty much maybe 20 hours a day yeah do you still focus as heavily on the business or has that changed your parameters slightly and you're now very
1: much focused on the family well, yeah so I've, I've actually got two so I've got an 18 month year old and an 18 month year old 18 month old and a and a six week old and yeah look I, the, I mean everything from the day of the first lockdown really my life changed an extraordinary amount like I've moved I've moved house so I left Shoreditch after 12 years and moved 20 minutes out into a kind of a grown-up house <laughs> had one baby had another baby developed a d2c business yeah. did a big raise you know life has changed. Life has changed an awful lot. For I think the better though, and well yeah, done for the better. Yeah, it's been amazing. I think. Um, do you know what um, Cass uh, Cassandra Stavrou, who who um, founded Proper, the popcorn brand, yep, who's who's amazing business, uh, amazing. She's an amazing person. She she had a baby at a similar time to me, and she said she described it as um, the baby just turning down the volume on everything else from like a ten to an eight. Yeah. I, I just and that to me, like I've never been able to better that analogy in terms of, you know, previously, you wake up and the first thing in your head is right. What am I doing today? Let me check. You know, quickly get my phone, check yesterday's numbers. Yeah, check this. You know, it's a straight away. It's yeah. like you're obsessed with the business, and yeah. that's all. That's the first thing you think about. It's the last thing you think about now you know the first thing i do when i wake up is check the monitor for the baby yeah, yeah, yeah. in the next room like is she okay like are they okay like yeah okay what do they need okay they need to be fed or you know whatever all the other parents stuff and like yeah. that suddenly goes in at number one on your priority list and actually it's really nice to turn down the volume mm-hmm. on everything else a little bit and, and it gives you great perspective mm-hmm. as well um but it's definitely challenging to to grow a business alongside doing that just because all of these things take a lot of time and you Mm -hmm. only have so many hours in the day, right? So I think, yeah, yeah, I think probably I do, I probably do work fewer hours now than I used to, but equally it's different and because Mm -hmm. we're a bigger organisation, that there's less requirement of me to do lots of things. I was going to say, And more requirement on me to meet with the team and and guide the teams and and make the bigger decisions. And, And, you know, your impact can still be huge in the decisions you make and the kind of the course that you set Mm -hmm. So increasingly now, I do like one-to-ones with 20 or 30 people every quarter, and we do big quarterly business reviews where me and some of the other senior guys will present the business to the whole business to tell them what's going on and what we need to focus on. So it it, it changes.
0: Yeah. And did you learn all of this just by doing, or did you get told by your SLT, right, we need
1: to be doing QBRs, for instance? Um, I think you just, you you look at what other people are doing, you read books, you pick up ideas. Mm -hmm. Um, You you know, I'm, I'm a big... A big business book reader um yeah. i think they're all you know you read people's autobiographies or you read you know the netflix one or the disney ceo or yeah, you read yeah. this and they're very entertaining you know the elon musk one, whatever yeah they're entertaining and there's a lot of fluff in them but mm-hmm. there's normally there's normally a few things where you go oh that's really clever yeah, yeah. and you just borrow other people's ideas right and you just borrow and you and you you f- figure out what's right for your culture and your organisation.
0: So so in terms i suppose of what the pandemic did for you guys and the r and d that you put into the, the compostable uh, coffee pots essentially you're no longer really a high street restaurant or a high street coffee shop essentially it's all mainly online right
1: yeah which has been a huge a huge pivot you know you, you see lots of these d2c businesses mm-hmm. grew big online businesses then open physical yeah we've kind of done it the other way around, in that we opened the physical but we are now primarily a coffee at home business yeah. you know we just released Um, our new home compostable pods which are so they're the first in the uk to be certified home compostable rather than industrially compostable Mm -hmm. and this is all now about leading a movement for us to become the world's most sustainable coffee brand because the big problem with pods is that they are aluminium and people naturally think hold on aluminium's okay right Like, like coke cans they can be infinitely recycled but that's not the case with pods and 20% 20% of every new pod that is made has to be made with freshly mined aluminium, and mining that aluminium is super energy mm. intensive, mm. toxic, potentially carcinogenic. Like it's really not nice. No. And the problem is that we, you know, everyone has these little aluminium capsules in their kitchen, but less than one in three actually get recycled. Yeah. yeah. So you know, 29,000 pods go into landfill every single minute, which is A insane. Minute. Twenty-nine thousand a minute so you know we, we thought if we were going to do these capsules that there has to be a better way so mm. ours you can compost at home um, literally in your back garden or in like a boshi bin or a similar thing they can go in the food waste bin mm-hmm. and they disappear faster than grass cuttings. so they decompose faster than grass cuttings which is amazing yeah. and actually they're certified climate neutral yeah. we think it is the most sustainable way to make coffee at home yeah. even more so than uh, loose methods like beans and yeah. cafetiers because the amount of coffee you use is so precise that you're not wasting coffee. And actually the growing, roasting, shipping, processing of coffee is quite carbon intensive mm. as well. So if you can be really accurate with the amount of coffee that you use inside a pod, yeah. not waste any, and then have it packaged in really amazing materials, that actually has the lowest carbon footprint of any way of making a high quality cup of coffee. So yeah, that's the business now, yeah. You know, and we, are, we are looking to Eat the lunch of those big companies who are, you know, have many, many billions of revenue every year, and we think it's we think it's a massive opportunity. And
0: and are too slow to adopt such a a unique approach, and are not
1: incentivised to do so because they're having too nice a time making billions and billions and billions of profit. You know, Nestle shareholders, have not they? Yeah, Nestle, who own Nespresso, Mm. but they do eight or ten billion dollars a year of these pods, and they're making billions of profit. And they, you know,
0: do you think that's wrong? Do you think they should have to by
1: law? be focused on R&D in that product. Yeah, absolutely. I think not just focusing on them, but like, you, you know, some you, you never know quite what to believe, but certainly a huge portion of the world's carbon is produced by a relatively no low number of yeah. big companies. You, you know, some some shocking proportion is is produced by 100 companies yeah. around the world. And I think, you, you know, to me, the, the Nestle and Nespresso thing would be a classic version of pushing the problem onto the customer Mm -hmm. by saying, well, we've given you an envelope to recycle with and we have things in our stores, you can bring them back. But like, is that really the point? Like, how about we just stop producing this stuff in the first place and stop incentivizing people to have it at home by giving them cheap machines and all that kind of stuff and actually fix the problem at its root root source. So, you know, we would like to see everyone switch to home compostable pods, um, Mm -hmm. you, you know. I think that would be the best thing ever for my business personally, mm-hmm. because the mass adoption of pods would be great, of compostability would be good for us, because yeah. we've already set our stall out about compostable. So we would benefit as everyone else switched anyway, and, and the world would benefit as yeah. well. I think, you know, these big big corporate organisations and need to take more responsibility for this stuff.
0: I wouldn't even call it early adoption, I'd call it early disruption to a certain extent. And actually looking at how your business was built over time in terms of only working with the high-end retailers or only working with, you know, Soho House, for instance, you know, the the creme de la creme. In terms of retail online, do you only sell through certain areas? You're not going to sell on Amazon, for instance, or you're not going to sell on certain certain websites because you want to sell exclusively
1: yeah so we only sell on we do sell on Amazon because right. we think Amazon is a s- highly convenient channel for people obviously for mass adoption but then yeah exactly so we do sell on Amazon because people just want to buy stuff on Amazon but we you know the vast majority of sales are on subscription on our right. own website and then there's a couple of other places you can buy it Acardo uh, being mm-hmm. one of them and then you can buy the physical tins in Selfridges and places like that but no we want to keep that very narrow because we want to control the customer experience and we want to have a relationship with our customers mm-hmm. and you know the value can come from not just that product but from you then subscribing and from us being able to send you free samples every now and again and us being able to send you videos showing how to uh, mm-hmm. how to get the best from your coffee at home and building a relationship over time like we have our own espresso machine increasingly our customers buy those and if mm-hmm. they need to they can send it back to us for repair and you know we want we want people to be with us drinking our coffee at home for 20 years and you build that i think you build that relationship directly with the customer Mm -hmm. by knowing your customer not Mm -hmm. by selling it through tesco's and sainsbury's and wherever else and just being interchangeable for whatever the next one is with a red sticker on it saying 50 percent off
0: so going back to kind of books and inspiration that you kind of pick up on what's the what's one of the best books that you've read that's kind
1: of helped you through your journey uh, I think that there's two that spring to mind actually, both about Netflix. So mm-hmm. there's one called uh, "That Will Never Work," which is by the the guy I can't remember his name who originally founded Netflix and like it was his it was his idea and he was a bit of like a wacky inventor and he had loads of different business ideas and then yeah, yeah. suddenly came up with this. And then you've got uh, "No Rules Rules" by Reed Hastings, who right. was involved from day one but later became CEO and really grew it into the you know the mega corporation it is today. And You know, I think seeing the story from both of those perspectives is amazing. And also hearing about Netflix, hearing about how Netflix pioneered so much of the cultural stuff that we now Mm -hmm. see everywhere, like unlimited paid time off and, you know, this very hands-off management Mm -hmm. style. I think they're, you know, you have to take it all with a pinch of salt always, but um, they're they're two that I think are really worth reading. In terms of buying Netflix on Amazon, where can you buy Grind? Uh, So you can buy Grind on our website, you can buy it on Amazon, uh, you can buy it in our stores. Uh, you can buy on a Cardo, you can buy lots of places now. Anywhere. Any- <laughs> yeah. Not anywhere. Premium <laughs> retailers only. <laughs> there you go. You've done an amazing job on, on making it
0: valuable, but also building a brand which could be and will be the world's first uh, eco-friendly coffee Thank you. business. Thank you. Right. Right. you. We're we'll trying. You're, you're getting that. Yeah, we're we'll trying. <laughs> Cheers, dude. Thank you thanks for listening to this podcast if you've enjoyed this episode why not listen to a few more and click subscribe this podcast was produced by pinpoint media and i'm oliver bruce i hope we can speak again soon take care